we're painted a picture of how life should go. That it should be pretty linear. You go to school, you get an education, you get a higher education, and then your life becomes this perfect little bubble. Uh, But the reality of life is that everyone doesn't have an opportunity to have that linear journey. And many people don't want that because they don't know what they want. And And that's not at the core of them what they see as a good life. This has been the model of successful life progression in America for the last century. Grammar school, high school, a four-year college, and then off to the races with your career. That conception of formal training being completed during the first quarter of the life course is just not tenable anymore because the pace of knowledge expansion and technological change requires that many, many people are going to be engaged in learning opportunities over the course of their entire lives, both for their lifelong employability, but also for their lifelong quality of life. That's Mitchell Stevens, a professor at the Graduate School of Education at Stanford University. He's questioning a deeply entrenched notion of how our lives should be lived. It's a model that is cemented into cultural norms and hardened through how we fund and support education in this country. But now, it's time to take a second look. There are many reasons to question this 20th century approach to education and work, but prominent among them are the increasing length and variability of our work lives. As we live longer, more and more of us reaching the age of 100, how can we continue to learn, to stay competitive in our fields, to acquire new skills, and keep mentally active for a longer, healthier life? From the Stanford Center on Longevity, Century Lives is here to start the conversation. I'm your host, Ken Stern. This season on the podcast, we ask what would a century-long life look like if we do more than just inherit the rules of the past? If we're able to reimagine how we live, how we learn, how we work, and how we take care of each other, if we could draw a new map of life. Today, we're going on a journey with Mitchell Stevens to explore the rapidly changing world of higher or post-secondary education in the U.S., Who is responsible for the lifelong employability of Americans? In the 20th century, we we split the deal. We had a national consensus that if someone did not complete high school, uh, the system had failed that person. It was not the person who had failed that system. There's a lot more ambiguity on the other side of high school. Americans have, have just not been able to decide definitively whose responsibility lifelong learning and lifelong employability might be. We tend to think that states have significant responsibility to make college education affordable for their residents, but the burden of tuition still falls mostly on students and their parents. This ambiguity of who's responsible for post-secondary education was easier to live with um, when we built this system in the 1970s, when the cost of post-secondary education was modest, when a great deal of it was shouldered by government, when meaningful, well-compensated employment did not require a college degree, and when the character of work uh, was, was, was sufficiently different that people could imagine that they would uh, remain in one or perhaps two occupations over the course of their entire lives. All of that is different now, right? But we haven't 
changed our national conversation about the responsibility of lifelong employability to accommodate these fundamental changes, both in post-secondary education and in the character of work. The COVID-19 pandemic has unleashed an unemployment epidemic in the United States. American businesses are in crisis as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic, and higher education is no exception. New data is showing that the pandemic is having a profound impact on college enrollment. Turns out a lot of students and their families didn't want to shell out big money for college tuition exclusively for online classes. When COVID hit, our national conversations around education and work did change. But Mitchell told us that really, the biggest tangible change was not in our attitudes towards higher education, but rather towards work and how we prepare for it. Unemployment and more time to reflect on our lives and career choices are changing how we feel about the paths we took and the ones yet to come. But for the teens faced with making that first big decision of their adult lives, seems like COVID hasn't changed cultural expectations all that much. I don't know, college has never been a sort of optional thing, I guess. That's Clara Wartell. She's 15 years old and a high school student at an elite private school in Washington, D.C. My mom went to two Ivy League schools for both college and law school, and my dad went to Northwestern, which is also a pretty good school. It's, it's never been a discussion in my family, like, what do you want to do after high school? The question is, where would you want to go to college? I mean, in my eyes, college is the thing you need to get a job. If I asked any of my friends what their dream colleges would be, it would be Columbia, Stanford, Harvard. No one's aiming small. Going to a selective college is the expectation for Clara and her peers. And it's one vigorously nourished by her school. It's in the curriculum to prep for college. There are things in the curriculum, like they give you time to write college essays and stuff like that, and so many resources to do it. If you said you didn't want to go to college, they would try to convince you otherwise. I mean, obviously, in the end, it's up to you, but they they wouldn't see it as a final decision. As Americans, we attach enormous weight to a degree that most people earn between the ages of 18 and 22, so much that the average bachelor's degree holder earns 34% more over a lifetime than an associate's degree holder and 84% more than someone with only a high school diploma. But is our country's unique fixation of four-year degree justified? Is what we learn at age 20 really so useful that it makes us more economically valuable 40 years after the fact? Mitchell sees it differently. The whole project is premised on the, I would say, the illusion that full-time 24-7 residential co-presence is primarily an educational project. It's primarily what social scientists call a social reproduction project. It's a, it's a mechanism whereby families can sequester their children at the height of their sexual lives to only interact with carefully curated others. And it works like a charm, right? I mean, um, demographers call it educational homogamy. It's the extent to which 
people marry others on the basis of comparable educational credentials. And that's a very powerful technology for preserving social advantage over time. And it's a very important reason why demand for residentially segregated admission selective schools has only gone up in the pandemic. There's a huge economic penalty for the two-thirds of Americans who don't get a four-year degree, and it should come as no surprise that our higher education system is segregated in this way. In fact, it's a legacy we've been carrying for a long time. But if we look back at the historical moments that led us to inherit this model, we might realize that we're now in a moment of change ourselves. Higher education was largely a project of white Christian elites who are either building it for themselves or giving it away virtuously to others. It wasn't until the conclusion of World War II, with the introduction of the GI Bill, that college was democratized, at least partially. The GI Bill explicitly tied college access to the most privileged members of the American polity, white male veterans. And so that's the moment when, when college really gets defined as this democratic project that at least some categories of Americans are owed by virtue of their, of their citizenship. A decade later, the demands of the Cold War again elevated colleges and universities as cultural and strategic assets. So this, this is a really great story. Soviets launched Sputnik in 1957. U.S. freaks out. Passes the National Defense Education Act of 1958. The Attorney General of the United States, Robert Kennedy. Basically a giant, it's like a stimulus bill. It was like, just dump piles of money on colleges and universities. Some of you may be familiar with the recent classroom scene in a Russian elementary school. A little boy, when asked to describe the United States, said, the United States is a sad country where workers and peasants are starving under capitalist exploitation by the cynical ruling classes. Correct, said the teacher. And what is the major goal of the Soviet Union? To catch up with the United States was a sober reply. And it's that momentum that President Lyndon B. Johnson builds on with the Higher Education Act of 1965 which not coincidentally, you know, passes the year after the Civil Rights Act of 1964. If you give black Americans an equal opportunity for higher education, and then you put a ballot in their hands, they will carve their own destiny. The ballot has become a fact. And now the doors of our colleges and universities, doors that stand ajar, must be open completely to all of our citizens, of all races, and of all economic conditions. In the wake of the civil rights movement, the Johnson administration was explicitly tying higher education access to projects of social mobility and inclusion for non-whites uh, and women. It was very successful in broadening the inclusiveness of higher education from the 1960s forward. But a decade hence, only a decade hence in the 1970s, white Americans begin to become much more skeptical of their government in general and the government subsidy of higher education 
in particular. This is when the tax revolts of the 1970s that began in California with Proposition 13 took off and, and swept the nation very quickly. Tax revolts and rising costs made colleges less accessible, just as good middle-class blue-collar jobs were drying up. The decline in well-compensated manufacturing work, among other things, has led some to advocate for a college-for-all model. And it's been successful in a lot of ways, but Mitchell thinks it's also short-sighted. What we didn't recognize is that College for All had a substantial downside, and that is that uh, if someone has not been able to finish high school or for whom the academic side of high school was not pleasurable, right, let alone successful, College for All is a terrible idea because uh, it, it essentially provides more ineffective medicine. And in fact, in the process of pursuing College for All, we will, the Americans let other avenues to well-compensated employment atrophy. Remember the comprehensive high school um, that had uh, lively programs in auto mechanics and woodworking and home economics, programs that were specifically designed to equip young people who were not headed to college uh, with other avenues into employment that was valuable and that they valued as well. While our emphasis on a certain kind of post-secondary education has been growing, so too have our lifespans. In the post-war years, the average lifespan of Americans shifted dramatically upward, from 65 years old in 1945 to almost 80 years old today. And we're now a population in need of a system that encourages learning and employability over the entire life course. Mitchell argues that COVID has presented us with the opportunity to step back and evaluate our situation. The pandemic has brought a social and cultural shock on par with the wars that first shaped higher ed. So could this be our historical moment? Could our new awareness of our own needs as individuals and as a society change education? I, I'm still very optimistic about the, the promise of the pandemic to fundamentally shift the way in which Americans think about teaching and learning and lifelong instructional opportunity. The number of reasons I'm convinced of that has only grown as the pandemic has continued. One change we've all seen in some form is the move towards digital communication. Online classes have often been dismissed as of lesser quality, but during the pandemic, it proved to be an effective tool for adults to learn and engage during a period of prolonged quarantine. For years, uh, the, the discourse on post-secondary quality was, was categorical and hierarchical. The good stuff was face-to-face, -face, the less good stuff was online. That hierarchy is, is not nearly as tenable as it was uh, before the pandemic. People have seen just how many utilities come through digitally mediated instruction. And while we're engaged in teaching and learning in this way, we're also amassing vast amounts of data that can be used to systematically observe what kinds of interactions work well for what kinds of learners and which topics and in which kinds of contexts. Because educational institutions have had to adapt to more online courses since COVID started, it looks like digitally mediated instruction might finally be promoted in our hierarchy of educational opportunities. 
but it's not news that this mode of education opens a lot of doors for learning. Take Alwyn Lee, for example, now 51 years old and originally from Ireland. I moved here to Indiana in 2000, so I was an adult. I had actually met my husband on the internet, and when we finally eventually met in person, and it all went fast from there. Before Alwyn moved to the States to be with her husband, she was pursuing a degree in therapeutic counseling. Her plan was always to pick back up on her studies once she settled down in the U.S. But then her daughter Shirley was born, and she was born with Down syndrome. Shirley was very ill when she was born, and so that became a very difficult process for me, and it, it totally ruled out college at that point. I was able to get my job in the bank without a degree, so I was able to do that, and I was able to, you know, move around within the bank in various different positions each year. But in terms of progressing at work and being able to do something more and being able to follow a career path, it was definitely a barrier there without a degree, which is what prompted me to start going back to college. With her responsibilities as a mom and caregiver and the mental health challenges she faced, Alwyn struggled to find the right form of higher education. In-person school wasn't a good fit, and online courses were then so underdeveloped that it was hard to absorb the material. But then Alwyn found an institution that worked for her, Purdue. Purdue has synchronous instruction, and that was a huge thing for me, that I was actually still having that face-to-face with the instructor. Um, the class was involved, we had audio, so we were all sort of giving input and receiving output, which is important part of learning, I think. They're very, very flexible in terms of how you're learning. It's all on your own terms. It, it fits your lifestyle, it fits your timetable, and it fits your work commitments. Online learning isn't for everyone. Clara, the high school student you met earlier, is like many of her peers categorically opposed to doing it again. But polling during the pandemic showed that many adults were highly satisfied by the burst of online learning during the great quarantine. It makes sense. As we age and take on more responsibilities, remote learning provides needed flexibility and personalization to the learning experience. More and more of us may look to online options as we seek certificate programs or additional degrees to move ahead in our careers. But Mitchell says it's not just the newly accepted possibility of online courses that COVID has changed, it's also how we feel about education and work in our lives. A great many Americans have rethought the bargain that they've struck with their employers in terms of time and money. They have seen that uh, life can include many more things than paid work and that life outside of work with a partner or children or uh, in the community or in nature or in home improvement can offer rewards that are substantial enough that they are rethinking their relationship to paid employment. That's, that's a, a substantial interruption in people's cognitive presumptions, right? It means that they're going to be uh, thinking twice or three times about whether they will return to the same occupation, to the same employer, with the same level of temporal commitment, right? So they may, in fact, be open to new learning and occupational opportunities that may take their lives in, in different directions. 
In the last few years, there's been an explosion demand for adult learning courses and certificate programs, as more and more Americans realize they need to expand their skills and expertise. Today, there are almost one million unique credential programs being offered in the U.S. It's the new wild west of American education, one that is marked by rapid growth and light regulation. And the best established institutions aren't necessarily equipped to lead this transformation. Economically vested as they are in the four-year residential model, well-resourced American universities play little role in this world of adult education. Community colleges do contribute, though the cash-strapped nature of their system means they currently play only a secondary role. That leaves a huge vacuum in adult education, and it's being filled by a wide variety of non-traditional players. Organizations that are not schools, that don't want to be schools, that are not regulated as schools, providing uh, credentials and promising that those credentials have exchange value in labor markets to rival associate or undergraduate degrees. I'm talking about the Amazons and Cisco's and Coursera's of the world who are very eagerly uh, moving into what has become a, a, a burgeoning market for alternative post-secondary credentials. Innovation and competition aren't necessarily bad, especially when incumbent organizations are not fulfilling educational needs. But still, while there's a great deal of energy and enthusiasm and talent and capital that's going to alternative credentials, there's very little that protects consumers of credentials um, from being defrauded. I often say that as a, as a consumer in California, I can purchase a used car sight unseen and have uh, greater confidence in the quality and value of what I'm purchasing than if I enter the market for a post-secondary credential in the United States. Um, it's just a, a very, very weakly regulated ecology, and that brings a great deal of risk, especially for the people who are most vulnerable to, to being <laughs> defrauded uh, by phony providers, right? I worry about that a lot. It keeps me up at night, frankly, and I'm actively seeking ways to develop routines for responsible behavior that will be, in fact, indigenous to the sector itself. And Mitchell argues the government still has a role to play in this. I personally would like to see investment in human capital from the Biden administration be thought of as on a par with infrastructure investment. And there is some of that with uh, additional investment in the National Science Foundation and workforce training education programs. But I fear that the national discourse in Washington is still sort of um, overly focused on college access and college costs rather than a, a broader conversation about lifelong opportunity creation that includes colleges and universities, but by no means um, is exclusive to them. A change in national policy where lifelong education is seen as an investment in human capital would be a significant shift from today's model, where support from federal, state, and local governments mostly ends at 18 or 21. The change in funding would be welcome, but so would a change in how we evaluate learning experience 
over the life course. Just ask Barbara Leach, who you met at the beginning of the program. You know, we don't often choose how our lives will go. Barbara is 66 years old, and she grew up in rural North Carolina in the 1970s. It was a very historic time. There was this huge push in the 70s for complete integration of schools. I was one of that cohort of black students who integrated an all-white school. I wasn't in the honors classes or any of that, but I did, I did manage to get a small grant and, and a scholarship to go to college. Barbara was one of six black female students to integrate a university, and the first year of college was hard on her. Then in her sophomore year, she fell in love. The age-old story, I thought love would be the answer to all of my other issues. And uh, it wasn't got pregnant. And then that opened up a whole different set of obstacles to getting an education. A few years down the line, when she was 10 and again 11 years old, Barbara's daughter attempted suicide. Barbara was suddenly thrust into the world of child mental health. She left her secure but unfulfilling job as a secretary to become an advocate in child mental health. She volunteered, got involved however she could, started and ran a nonprofit, took online courses and completed certificate programs, came to work at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and still... I've seen jobs that I really thought that I'd be great at. Uh, but I couldn't apply for them because I didn't have a bachelor's degree. So even though I've had 30 years of experience, I don't qualify for the job. Many of us are now wanting more formal education, perhaps to get to the next level in our jobs, or to help us transition careers, or maybe just to learn something new. All those things have proven career and health benefits, an important part of our vision for the 100-year life. At the same time, though, our system continues to place an enormous social and economic value on the four-year residential experience, to the lifetime benefit of those who can take advantage of those opportunities, and to the lifetime detriment of those often economically disadvantaged who cannot, but even for those on the higher end of the income distribution. I think we are seeing uh, substantial rethinking, or at least open, openings to new possibilities for how education and the life course might fit together. The fact that uh, a, a large proportion of undergraduates at Stanford, for example, rather than enrolling fully online, you know, opted to take leave quarters or leave years and do things that they might otherwise have done immediately after or before college in the middle of college, right? So I think the the, the lockstep presumption of, of, of how an upper middle class life course is supposed to play out, I think has been suspended somewhat. Now, I'm optimistic enough to think that, as is often the case with cultural change, when relatively privileged groups start doing things differently, it normalizes the, the possibility of those alternative strategies for other people. As for the future these groups might be ushering in, Here's Clara Wartell's reaction to going back for more schooling later in life. Uh, yeah, why not? I mean, in high school, I did Algebra 1 in 8th grade, and I'm doing Algebra 2 this year, 
and I had to review over summer because I don't remember all of algebra and there's more I can learn. Why not keep doing that? I don't think that has to stop. I, it's, it's the same concept as school just sort of stretched out longer. I don't think that's a bad thing. Sure, it sounds a little a little funky, sort of a out out of the box idea, but I, I think at least I would go for it. She even finds the possibility of multiple careers during her lifespan intriguing. I think it's it's almost relieving that the thing that I pick first doesn't have to be my end all be all. That there is an even enough time to do up to seven different jobs, seven different careers. Like the fact that that is possible and a lot of people do that, is sort of opening for some things. Because you know you're 18 where you decide where you wanna to go to college. It's sort of early to pick everything you wanna do in your life and yet that's all the pressure you have on you. But I guess it's, I don't wanna say it's easier to change than you'd think, but it's, it's more in the realm of possibility. And I like that. I believe you're a lifelong learner and, and I won't stop learning just because I have my degree. I think we're all, we all should be permanent students because the day you think you know enough is the day that you <laughs> are really kidding yourself. We don't know enough because things are changing so much every single day and so you should be still learning. I feel like my life is just beginning now at 50, basically, because I have finally found a job that I really love doing. I've finally got my degree. My life went in so many twists and turns. I wish I could change some of the outcomes, you know, that I didn't have to work so hard to get where I was now. But I didn't give up, you know, that's, that's the one thing I hang on to. I didn't give up. I keep going. I keep chipping away. And here I am. That was Alwyn Lee. Join us next time for the final episode of this season of Century Lives. My, my middle child, uh, who was 21, just graduating from a good university, good degree in, in economics. Uh, and he said, Dad, I'm not going to get a job next year. And I was not pleased by that. Because when I graduated, if you took time out and then went to get a job, it was a problem. And he said, Dad, it's not like that. What does the future of work hold for generations living to 100 and working to 70, 80, or even 90 years old? That's next time on Century Lives. The producers of Century Lives are Carrie Thompson and Ava Ahmedbegi. Music for this episode was provided by Ramtin Arablui and Audio Network. Additional archival clips are from NPR, KVLU, WBUR, WRVR, and KUT Radio. Special thanks for this episode to Jamie Allman, Purdue Global, and Opportunity at Work. Century Live is a production of the Stanford Center on Longevity, where our mission is to support ideas and research so that century-long lives are healthy and rewarding ones. You can find out more about us at longevity.stanford.edu. Support for the Stanford Center on Longevity comes from the Annenberg Foundation, dedicated to addressing the critical issues of our time through innovation, community, compassion and communication. Thanks for listening. I'm Ken Stern.